Hello, and welcome to this special edition of MLB Morning Coffee. This is your host, Greg Moraz, coming to you from the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Because Major League Baseball is on hold due to the coronavirus, and there's really not a whole lot of news to report other than injuries, we've decided to go into a 30-part series. What 30-part series, might you ask? Well, a 30-part series that gives the top 10 players of every Major League Baseball franchise. The next in our top 10 series is the Milwaukee Brewers. Originally a franchise that was the Seattle Pilots, they played one year in Seattle in 1969 before moving to Milwaukee County Stadium in 1970. The Brewers' only pennant came when they were members of the American League in 1982. However, they moved to the National League and did not make the playoffs again until 2008, a wild card year that saw CC Sabathia in half a season put the team on his back. The Brewers won their first NL Central title in 2011 and made it to the NL Championship Series on the backs of Prince Fielder and Ryan Braun. They were not in the playoffs again until 2018 when a combo of Braun, MVP Christian Yelich, and some great bullpen pitching got them a game away from the World Series. And having struggled through part of the 2019 season, the Brewers made a terror of a run in September of 2019 got to the wildcard game, and lost to the eventual World Series champion, Washington Nationals. To give me his top 10 Brewers is a lifetime Brewers fan. He is the voice of the Clinton Lumber Kings, a team I used to work for. He has also been with the Orem Owls and the Burlington Bees, where I first met him. In fact, it's going to be kind of weird. This is going to be the first time in a while that I haven't been in the same league with him. It is Michael Braskowski. What's going on, Brasco? Hey, Greg. Good to be here. How you doing? Oh, you know, just sheltering in place. I'm sure that you're trying to find ways to keep yourself occupied. And uh, it is certainly quite a time that we're dealing with here. Unprecedented. Yeah, it's 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 kind of weird. And, uh, you know, you can complain about being bored and stuff, but uh, just try to be be thankful for your health. If, if you know, it's a good health right now. And um, just trying to find find ways to to keep busy and been watching some classic uh, sporting events on YouTube and uh, just trying to make the best of it. So this is our top 10 Milwaukee Brewers list and you grew up a Brewers fan, but you know, during your childhood, they were somewhat devoid of success, but let me at least take you into, and I was a little bit younger. I'm a little bit younger than you. I'll take you to 2008. I don't remember that year that well, but as a fan, what was it like watching that team down the stretch, the acquisition of Sabathia, and seeing what that team did to get to the wild card? I mean, it was quite simply one of the best second halves that you've ever seen. Yeah, it was funny because uh, I remember that was the uh, summer after I graduated high school, and uh, they made the trade for CC Sabathia. It was, I think it was June or early July. It was earlier than the deadline. And, uh, you know, they pitched them on it, it seemed like every three days. And it was towards the end of the year. And I remember I went off to college and uh, I found them, sure, some way to watch the games. And uh, I remember that final game, uh, Brewers needed some help. Uh, the Marlins and the Mets were playing and the Marlins beat the Mets. And I just remember going crazy in my dorm room. And uh, it was fun because... Uh, two years ago at winter meetings, um, it was in Orlando. I met Doug Melvin, who was the GM of the Brewers at the time, and went up to him and I'm like, "Hey, I just wanted to meet you, and uh, 
you know, I grew up a big Brewers fan. I want to say the day you made that trade for CC Sabathia was one of the best days of my life as a baseball fan. And it was kind of funny because he looked at me and said it was one of my best days too. And then lo and behold, my two years in Orem, I'd see him every summer because he had a summer home out in Utah. So um, it was kind of cool to reminisce about that. And that 2008 team was really fun. And they went on and lost three games to one of the uh, Phillies. We all know what the Phillies did that year. But yeah, that 2008 team was fun. And it was a lot of the young guys who started coming up and uh, Braun and, and Fielder and, and Ricky Weeks. And that was that was neat to finally get to the playoffs for the first time in my life. Certainly one of those situations where when a team gets on a roll, they get on a roll. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize when they look at that team in retrospect, they changed managers with, or is that 2011? Am I getting it wrong? Did they, did they swap out Yost for, for Swain in 08? 2008. Yeah. I mean, to me, changing a manager in September is unprecedented. And I don't think anybody has done that since. Yeah, I think they they got swept in a series, and it was against the NL East team. I think it was either the, the Phillies or the Nationals, but they got swept. Uh, Ned Yost was let go, and Dale Swaim coached the the final uh, twelve games of the season. He went seven and five, and and went into the playoffs, and um, obviously was a manager in the playoffs. Yeah, it was it was kind of unprecedented, and it's something you never see. And it's kind of weird to look at that and see an interim manager. Uh, in the playoffs, and um, you know, I, I think it was just a, a move. The Brewers led the division for a lot of that time, and the Cubs went on a run, and uh, you know, they kind of overtook the uh, the Brewers. And I guess uh, you know, they they thought a move was needed, and they promoted Dale Swaim, and and Dale was able to uh, get a, a managerial job out of that eventually with the Chicago Cubs, and now now back with Ned Yost, or was back with Ned Yost, so. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting, interesting uh, season to say the least. You lose a division lead, you, you fire your manager with twelve games to go, and your interim manager gets you into the wild card thanks to some help from the Marlins. Let us get into the top ten list. I am going to start with my number ten. This seems like kind of a modern cop out, but I'm going to go Christian Yelich number ten. And granted, so much of Yelich's story has yet to be written, but in his two years with the Brewers, he has combined to hit. 80 homers. He's hit 327. He won the MVP in 2018, leading the NL in batting average at 326, leading the NL in slugging percentage at 598, 36 homers, 110 RBI. And what's more impressive about his 2019 season is he actually was better by all the metrics, but he finished with less RBI because he got hurt at the beginning of September and the Brewers win 20 of their last 24 games to sneak into the wild card. Yet he had more homers than he did in 18 with 44. He led the NL in batting average again at 329, led in on base at 429. He finished second in the MVP voting and led all of baseball in slugging percentage at 671 and OPS at 1,100. I know that it seems a little bit early to put him in the top 10, but given the fact that he's going to be under contract for the next nine years and that he's really showing no signs of slowing down once it gets going again I mean there's no reason to believe that Yelich by the time it's all said and done will finish anywhere outside the top five. Oh yeah I agree uh, you, you go back to that day in December in uh, 2017 and, and Stearns pulls off an incredible day as a GM makes a trade for 
uh, Christian Yelich, and I, I believe he gave up quite a bit for Yelich. I think Monte Harrison and uh, I really like Jordan Yamamoto. It was it was a big package to send over to the Marlins, and you, you didn't think at the time you were you were getting an MVP player yet. And you maybe thought maybe in the future, and then he goes out and uh, wins the MVP and and leads the Brewers to their first division title since 2011, and we're one game away from going to the World Series, and then he comes back next year and could have gotten back-to-back MVPs if it wasn't for fouling a ball off his knee. And um, so, yeah, I think you definitely have to put him in the top 10 because of just what he's done for this franchise. You know, he came in on that day in December and they signed Lorenzo Cain on the same day. And I think that changed the franchise quite a bit because they were kind of in a spot where they were good enough to maybe compete for a wild card. And then you go out and acquire Christian Yelich and you're an automatic, you know, division uh, contender. Who is your number 10? My number 10, I am going to, uh, I'm going to put Jonathan Lucroy at 10. I think Jonathan Lucroy was one of the best catchers the Brewers have had in a long time. And I think he doesn't get enough uh, recognition for what he did in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, you go back to the 2014 season and it's remembered as kind of a disappointment because the Brewers led the division for probably 75%, 80% of the season and then went on one of the most uh or the biggest collapse in franchise history and they ended up you know making a change and bringing in Craig Council as manager but you look at that 2014 season he had 301 with 53 doubles which led major league baseball and then you know you look at what he did in Milwaukee as a whole at 280 in 2013 and 320 in 2012 as a catcher Brewers haven't had too many catchers like that and I think he's deserving of being in the top 10 because he was kind of part of that foundation that got Milwaukee back into being a playoff contender. Yeah, I think Lucroy is somebody, by the way, a former Helena Brewer that doesn't get enough love because he's bounced around a lot since he left Milwaukee. But I think when you remember him for what he did at his best, you remember him as a Milwaukee Brewer. My number nine, this was a tough one. I was debating these two, but I'm going to go with Ben Ogilvy. Ben Ogilvy joined the Brewers in 1978. He was a three-time All-Star. In 1980, he led the American League in homers with 41, had 118 RBI, won his only Silver Slugger Award, All-Star appearances in 82 and 83. He had 34 homers and 102 RBI in 1982. The reason why I put Ogilvy on this list, Michael, is that 82 was their only World Series appearance, and he was one of their best offensive players during that season. And he had sustained success while he was with the Brewers overall in his nine years with Milwaukee, hit a career 277 with 176 of his 235 homers. This is a guy that played before we were born, but I think when you go back and you look at his history, there is a lot that Brewers fans look back on fondly. Yeah, and I think he hit more in the bottom of the order, too, is where a lot of his production uh, came from. And I just remember seeing, I think the other night, Fox Sports Wisconsin was airing one of the uh, games from 82. I think it was game the, the, the final game of the game five against the California Angels. But I think he was hitting uh, further down the batting order and he was, you know, producing like that. And uh, yeah, he was he was a spark plug for that team. And also, side note, uh, my uncle would always tell me growing up that was his neighbor when he was a kid and he used to watch his dog. So uh, uh, kind of fun story there. Number nine for you, sir. Number nine for me, um, 
I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to pick a pitcher on this one, and I'm gonna stick uh, with the 2008-2011 era and go Giovanni Gallardo. Uh, Giovanni was an all-star in 2010 with the Brewers, won 14 games, and the next year somehow was not an all-star in 2011, but when they won the division title, won 17 games in total in Milwaukee. He ended up going 89-64 and with a 369 ERA and was uh, in the top 10 in Cy Young voting one year, was an all-star, and uh, he was the Brewers' ace that they haven't had in a long time for a good five-year run, so I think Giovanni Gallardo um, definitely deserves to be in that top 10. He's my number nine for what he did and kind of became that ace that Milwaukee hadn't had since uh, Ben Sheets was in his prime. You know, it was funny as I'm looking at my list and kind of seeing where your list is going. I had somebody on to talk, my buddy James Van Dyke, former Helena Brewers AGM, to talk Colorado Rockies because he used to work for the Rockies and he's one of the biggest Rocky fans I know. And our lists were identical. I can tell that our lists for the Brewers are going to be somewhat different. And I like that. I like having disparity in that. And Giovanni Gallardo at his best was an elite starter in that 08 to 2011 era Milwaukee team. And it was funny. I was walking in the Mission District in San Francisco about two months ago, and I had actually passed by this place about a year ago. There is a place called Gallardo's and Somebody actually put up a tiny picture of Giovanni Gallardo in the window the last time I walked by. It had not been in there before, uh, and I guess just nobody ever bothered to take it down. So uh, on to number eight, this is a guy that you watched growing up, and I would classify him in the category of this guy was always good. He was never great. You could always depend on him for 20-plus homers and around 80 or something RBI. And that's Jeff Jenkins, a almost career brewer. He played with Milwaukee from 1998 until 2007, played his last season with the Philadelphia Phillies in 2008, where he did win a World Series title. His best year came in 2000, 34 homers, 94 RBI with a 303 batting average. His only all-star appearance came in 2003, 28 homers, 95 runs batted in, and a 296 average. He had 221 career homers. I might have Jenkins a little bit higher than most people would, but he had longevity in a Brewers uniform, and he was just always there and always pretty consistent. Yeah, Jenkins was a fun one to watch growing up because he came at a time towards the end of County Stadium and right before they opened Miller Park, and there wasn't wasn't a lot of star power on the team until um, they went out and traded for Richie Sexton, but... um, you know, it was him and Jeremy Burnitz offensively and Jeff Cirillo when they were kind of closing down County Stadium and going into Miller Park. So he was kind of what you what you cling to as a fan, especially, you know, as a kid my age, because he was really the only player that put up big numbers at that time. So, yeah, I think he's definitely uh, deserving of the top 10. I actually have him just, I think, a little bit outside mine, but uh, uh, I like that choice, and uh, I know for a while there he was so fun to watch, and I was glad to see him when he went on to Philadelphia at the end of his career get a deep playoff run. Number eight for you, sir. Number eight for me, I'm going Don Money. Uh, four-time All-Star, all coming with the Brewers. Uh, of course, he started his career with Philadelphia in, in the late 60s, and uh, the 74 season stood out to me. He was an All-Star that year, and 709 plate appearances that led Major League Baseball, and he had 629 at-bats, was an all-star, finished in the MVP voting, 283 average with 19 stolen bases, drove in 65 runs. Uh, his probably his best season 
in terms of power came in 77 when he hit 25 home runs, which is a solid defensive third baseman. He played until he was 36 with Milwaukee, went on to manage for a long time in the Brewers system. I remember I heard a story, I think someone was saying, if you asked Don Money who was the best third baseman in baseball, he would answer himself. Uh, and I think that's, you know, there's an argument there. He was he was so good. And, um, you know, he played a long time with the Brewers after starting his career in Philadelphia and just stayed in the organization. So he's in my top 10 at number eight. Here's somebody at number seven that you might be surprised. And his career numbers are not great. But during the late 70s and early 80s, you would hardly find a better power hitter in the American League than Gorman Thomas. Gorman Thomas in 1978 hit 32 homers, drove in 86 runs. He led the American League in homers in 1979 with 45, drove in 123 runs, but also led all of Major League Baseball in strikeouts. In 1980, he hit 38 homers, 105 RBI, and again, led Major League Baseball in strikeouts. In 1981, 21 homers and 65 RBI, comes back in 1982, leads all of baseball with 39 homers, 112 driven in. He only hit 245. So in that span of 78 to 83, and he was dealt from Milwaukee to Cleveland in 83, he was over 20 homers every time and over 30 homers four different times, over 100 RBI three different times, one-time All-Star, top 10 in the MVP voting twice, Certainly somebody that is well-known for his Fu Manchu as much as he is known for his power bat. But Gorman Thomas, to me, when I'm looking at him and I say, you know, I don't know if his numbers necessarily pale in comparison to a lot of the other guys that I would put in this spot. But given his impact at the time and how much his bat had an impact on that Harvey Wallbanger lineup, I had to put him number seven. Yeah, that's a good choice. Uh, Storm and Gorman, one of the better power hitters of that era, probably along with George Scott back in those days. And uh, it's funny because here in the Midwest League, this uh, bearing all of this time in which we don't know if we're going to have a season, um, Lansing Lugnuts broadcaster Jesse Goldberg-Strassler started uh, an all-time team tournament. And of course, I work for the Clinton Lumber Kings and uh, Gorman Thomas played here in Clinton and uh, he was unanimous in our office voting as a starting DH for our squad. And you just look at his numbers and they're eye-popping. And it's a, it's a power guy and uh, one of the better power guys the Brewers have had, um, especially uh, probably not until, you know, Prince Fielder and Ryan Braun. So number seven. Number seven for me, I'm going Ben Sheets. Uh, Olympic hero Ben Sheets, of course, helped Team USA win gold against Cuba, him and uh Roy Oswalt, uh, it's been a while since U.S. baseball have done that, but Ben Sheets had a, almost a 23-war uh, pitcher war for his career, which was a majority in Milwaukee until he went to Oakland in 2010 and had that 18-strikeout game against the Atlanta Braves on a Sunday afternoon and a season that was kind of over right away, but he uh, just had that amazing game, and he always seemed like the tough luck pitcher. He had 16 losses, which led uh, Major League Baseball in 2002, but then two years later was an All-Star, which is a 12-14 and 14 record, a 270 ERA, and, uh, you know, he was an All-Star again his final two years in Milwaukee and finally got some winning records once the uh, offense and the team got a little better in 07 and 08, and that was his final year in Milwaukee, and I just felt like he's a, he's a pitcher who would have better numbers if he was on some better teams because his wins and loss record weren't great, but you look at his ERA, you look at his strikeouts, I mean, uh, he, he struck out 264 batters in 237 innings in 2004. So uh, Ben Sheets is, is my number seven. And uh, 
always remember watching him pitch, especially that 2001 season when he was an all-star as a rookie. Yeah, Ben Sheets is one of those guys that if injuries don't bring him down toward that 2000, the end of that 2008 and in that 2009 era, I remember he came back for one year with the Oakland A's, but you know, if Ben Sheets stays healthy, he's somebody that I feel like could have had maybe not a Hall of Fame trajectory, but potentially one where we're talking about him as one of the best starting pitchers of his decade. On to number six, for me, I went with a really interesting choice here. And this guy only played four years with the Brewers, with one of them being absolutely horrible his last. But in 1981, Raleigh Fingers won the NL Cy- or AL Cy Young Award, pardon me. I keep forgetting that the Brewers once played in the American League. He won the AL Cy Young Award as a reliever. In his first year with Milwaukee, he had a 104 ERA in 78 innings of work. He saved a major league leading 28 games that season. Fingers struck out 61 guys, walked only 13. He also won the American League MVP that year. He gave up a total of nine earned runs in 78 innings of work. That won him the MVP as well. So while Raleigh Fingers is known mostly for being the dominant closer of the 70s A's, when he came to the Brewers, he had two all-star appearances in 81 and 82. And he was good in 82, not as good as he was in 81, but still a 2.6 ERA, 79 innings of work, actually had more saves that year with 29, missed 83, comes back in 84, a 1.96 ERA in 33 appearances. And Michael, I know that that may seem like an out-of-the-box pick, but to me, when you look at what Raleigh Fingers did in that 1981 season, and you figure that not only got him the Cy Young, but it got him the MVP. Like you sometimes like people are amazed when relievers end up winning the Cy Young. They're even more amazed when relievers win an MVP award. Yeah. And in 1980, that was the first time the Brewers really went out and and made a big deal to improve their ball club and brought star power. Because if you remember, he was traded by the Cardinals along with Ted Simmons and Pete Vukovic. I think they sent uh, Sixto Lascano and I think Larry Sorensen was in that deal. And that was the first time the Brewers acquired some major talent that they didn't produce themselves and ended up working out. I mean, yeah, they lost in the 82 World Series, but certainly at no fault to Raleigh Fingers, who, you know, was a two-time All-Star in his four years uh, in Milwaukee. And, of course, he missed the 83 season with an injury, and it kind of just fizzled out from there. But, um, you know, his numbers, 28 saves, 29, 23, even after the year after he was injured. So, you know, when a Cy Young and MVP as a reliever, you got to be pretty good. And yeah, he's deserving of that sixth spot. I think I have him probably at 11 on mine. But, uh, you know, I, I like your thinking. And I, you made up some good points that I didn't, I didn't really consider when I kind of put my list together. Number six on your list. Again, we're with Michael Braskowski, the voice of the Clinton Lumber Kings and lifetime Milwaukee Brewer fan. You know, he's not going to appear in any um, lists in terms of, guys who uh, put up consistent big numbers for the Milwaukee Brewers and he only pitched for the Brewers for two years but because he uh, holds a place in their history I think he's deserving of being top 10 because it's one of the most talked about things uh, in Brewers history and that's Juan Nieves who won 14 games in uh, 1987 of course he um, threw the last ever and the only Brewers no hitter although I will say CC Sabathia should have had a no hitter in 2008 if it wasn't for an official scorer in Pittsburgh but uh, Juan Nieves um, 
was outstanding for the Brewers in a in a three year run in late uh, late eighties, included on a team that started thirteen and zero, and you know a career that was kind of cut short due to injury. And uh, yeah, the no hitter um, at against Baltimore, Robin Yount made the diving catch in the outfield. Uh, I got Juan Nieves uh, in there because I think uh, he's deserving of it for what he did. I don't think he was appreciated enough and. You, you look at what he did in a short time, winning 32 games over the span of three seasons for a guy who had some injury difficulty and only started 25 games in his third year. It's, it's pretty impressive. So we now move into the top five. Number five for me is Cecil Cooper. And Cecil Cooper, like Gorman Thomas, one of the big power hitters of that early 80s Brewers club, but he was so much more consistent. In 1979, leads the AL with 44 homers, or sorry, I'm looking at doubles. I don't know why. I don't know why on baseball reference sometimes I end up looking at the wrong column just because it's all this this table of numbers and if I don't delineate it I end up reading the wrong thing. So he actually led the American League with 44 doubles, 24 homers, 106 RBI, hit 308 that season, made the All-Star team, won the Gold Glove. The next season, he finishes 5th in the MVP voting, wins his first of 3 consecutive Silver Slugger awards. 25 homers, 122 RBI, which leads all of Major League Baseball. He also leads the American League in total bases with 335. Down year in 1981, although he did lead all of Major League Baseball in doubles, still hit 320, but he only played in 106 games. Comes back in 81, hits 313, 32 homers, 121 RBI, finishes fifth in the MVP voting again. And by the way, worth noting, he still won the Silver Slugger in 1981, despite the fact that that he only played in 106 games. In 83, he leads all of Major League Baseball in RBI with 126. He played 11 of his 17 years in the big leagues with the Brewers, hit 201 homers over those 11 years, 302 average. Cecil Cooper, five-time All-Star, finished in the top five in MVP voting three times, two-time Gold Glove winner, three-time Silver Slugger Award winner, somebody that a lot of Brewer fans hold near and dear to their hearts. Yes, yeah, Cecil Cooper uh, was outstanding for those teams, and of course had a had a nice career managing. He was a manager of the Houston Astros, and they they just had him on um, one of the Brewers um, broadcasts. They had him on a Zoom interview talking about his time in Milwaukee, and you know, yeah, he had a thirty one WAR for his career, and uh, I think he he's a good choice for this spot. In fact, I'm going to change my list a little bit because I had Cecil Cooper at probably you know 12 or 13 and I realized how wrong I was and I think that's probably because me being uh, younger and uh, I'm gonna put him in the same spot as same spot too and I think he was with a probably the bigger force on that 82 team and you remember in that 82 season uh, 32 home runs which as you mentioned was his career best 121 runs bad in wasn't even his career best it was his third most career uh, runs bad in. He had hit 122 in 1980, 126 in 83. Statistically, he almost had a better year, not batting average wise, but everything else uh, in 1983 and 1985. But uh, yeah, 82, that was the season he really led the team. And, and you kind of forget that he was a veteran by then. He was 32 years old in 1982. And he started his career at Boston in 1971. So his career spanned from 1971 to 1987. And, you know, you, you see what he did. He Ended up accumulating 2,192 hits and 1,896 games in his career and was a five-time All-Star all coming with Milwaukee. So 
yeah, you kind of changed my mind on that, Greg. I'm putting him in the exact same spot. All right. I like to hear that. I'm glad that I have that type of influence on people, considering that I'm the one that only worked for a Brewer affiliate for one year, and you're the one that's rooted for the team your entire life. So I'm glad that uh, I had that type of influence. Well, I think sometimes it's it's tougher when you're a fan because you you're you think of things not in the terms of stats. For instance, I would in terms of me growing up being being a fan and a diehard, if I had a if I could make a top ten list based on just players that I remember in terms of liking as a kid, they probably wouldn't come anywhere near the top ten list of guys who did things statistically that, you know, helped the franchise but I'd put a top 10 together of guys I just like. And so sometimes it's difficult doing it uh, from the other perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think that we all have to look at it from the fans perspective and the statistical perspective, because when you look at something one way or another, it definitely varies your viewpoint. I know that seemed like a generically vague answer, but that's effectively what it is. On to number four. A modern guy, one of the few modern guys that I've mentioned so far, I'm going with Prince Fielder because Prince Fielder was the premier power hitter of his era with the Brewers. 2007, his first all-star team, 50 homers, 119 RBI, finishes third in the MVP voting. 2008, hits 276, 34 homers, 102 runs batted in. 2009, he leads all of baseball with 141 RBI, 46 bombs. 299 batting average of 412 on base percentage that year finishes fourth in the MVP voting in 2010. He has more of a down year, but he still leads all of baseball and walks with 114 2011 finishes third in the MVP voting 38 homers, 120 RBI 299 average of the 415 on base percentage wins his second silver slugger award 2012. He departs goes to Detroit has a couple of decent seasons, gets traded to Texas, and then has that career-ending back injury. Again, we look at Prince Fielder in terms of what he could have been if he had stayed healthy for his entire career, but his entire Brewers career played out because he left. But I feel like from 2007 to 2011, when he was at his peak and he hit over 30 homers every year, over 100 RBI in four of those five years, there may not have been a better power hitter in baseball. And, you know, there might actually be one on this same team that I'll get to in a little bit, but there may not have been a more thrilling power hitter just in the way that he approached everything than Prince Fielder. Yeah, you're right. And I remember when the, the Brewers drafted him and I was, I was always a kid. I, I remember when the MLB first year player draft was just a conference call held over the span of two days I would listen to the draft, and I was so excited when they got Prince Fielder. And I think he either homered or hit a grand slam. It was either a regular home run or a grand slam in his first pro at bat when he was with the Ogden Raptors. Then I got to watch him for a season and a half in Beloit growing up. We went to a lot of Beloit snapper games. And then he came up, and, you know, he, he got the Brewers winning. And, you know, was that power hitter. It was just it was fun to see. And he had an inside-the-park home run at Minnesota when one of his high fly balls hit a speaker in the outfield and uh, he was just different. It was fun to see the Brewers have someone like that, that they produced. And it was a while that they produced a star like him. And he was kind of the, for the first before Ryan Braun. And I wonder now if our lists are going to kind of sync up because I have fielder at four 
and there's probably three guys left on this list for each of us, and I wonder if they're kind of in the same spot. So I had Fielder at four. You had Fielder at four. My number three, this was a tough decision, but I'm going to go with Ryan Braun. And Ryan Braun I had in this spot because, number one, his career is not done yet, so I can't necessarily put him above my number one. But Ryan Braun was the best hitter in baseball at his peak in the early 2010s. Now, I know that a lot of that might be mired by what his steroid controversy might have been, but he was a top five draft pick when he was drafted out of Miami. He was actually number five in the 2005 draft, played for the Helena Brewers to start off his career, wins the rookie of the year in 2007 with a 34 homer, 97 RBI season where he hit 324. His second year, he finishes third in the MVP voting in 2008, 37 homers, 106 RBI, 285 batting average, 09, 32 homers, 114 RBI, wins the Silver Slugger Award. Braun made five straight All-Star teams from 08 to 2012. His best season came in 2011 when the Brewers made the NLCS. 33 homers, 111 RBI, 332 batting average, wins the MVP. Next season, he finishes second in the MVP voting, leads the NL in homers with 41, 112 RBI, hits 319. Braun had injury troubles in 2013 and in 2014, he just was not the same hitter. Had a good rebound year in 2016 where he hit 30 homers, drove in 91, and had a 305 batting average. Hasn't been the same guy, but on that 2018 team where he played 125 games, he only hit 20 homers. But Ryan Braun, I feel like, has molded into that leader that a lot of the younger guys look up to. And every time I look at Brewer's Twitter and he did something big, it was always Ryan Braun, professional hitter. But the start of his career is as good as the start to any career in the modern era. Yeah, Ryan Braun, when they took him out of Miami, of course, as you mentioned, third baseman. And he's also hit some of the biggest home runs in his in Brewers history. I remember 2008, he hit a big home run against Pittsburgh late in the year. Then against the Cubs, he hits that massive home run that they end up on going on to get the win with CeCe Sabathia working a complete game. 2011 has some huge moments. And then recently, I mean, hit a grand slam at St. Louis uh, this past summer that uh, put the Brewers in a lead for the wild card. And he seems to always have big Septembers. And yeah, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the suspension, the PEDs and everything that happened. And he, he kind of, in a way, um, has, I won't say national view, but in Milwaukee, he really kind of uh, rebounded in terms of his perception on uh, he, he said a lot of the right things, at least in terms of Milwaukee, obviously um, your home fans are going to forgive you a lot more than, you know, fans at opposing ballparks as he found out, but you know, he's stayed in Milwaukee his whole career. I think he was talking at the beginning of this year in spring training that, you know, this could be his last year, either in a Brewers uniform, perhaps his last year of his contract or his last year as a player. And, um, he signed a 10-year extension early in his career, uh, kind of like Christian Yelich just did. And uh, it was him who kind of kind of gave Milwaukee sports fans hope because Milwaukee sports fans aren't used to their stars sticking around. And that's the case in a lot of, uh, a lot of mid, mid to small market cities. And he kind of gave you hope that, oh, maybe guys do want to stay here. And, you know, he signed that big contract. So he's, he's pretty popular in Milwaukee still. 
I think he's somebody that is going to transcend time in Milwaukee. I think he is going to be remembered so fondly, even though he had his controversy. So, you know, I like Ryan Braun to this day, and I think he's a likable guy, and I think he's learned from his mistakes, and, you know, he's never going to be the same player that he once was, but still somebody that is going to be productive. And, you know, I was just thinking about this, Michael, before we go on to your number three. Is his contract up after this year? Yep, this is his last year of his contract, and he, he said it was either his last year as a Brewer or uh, maybe the last year of year of his uh, playing career because he, he kind of realizes that the Brewers probably won't re-sign him unless if he, they do, maybe he you know, comes back on a year-to-year contract basis. So, yeah, it's the last year of his contract. I remember when he signed it; it was a, you know, I think it was a, a nine-year with a option or something like that, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy, and then a few year about ten years later, uh, Christian Yelich signs a signs a big contract extension. Well, the only reason that I bring that up before we get to your number three is that Major League Baseball has guaranteed everybody a year of service time if they don't play this year, which means that there's a possibility that we've seen the last of Ryan Braun in a Brewers uniform. Yeah, and that, that'd be pretty crazy. It's it's always weird when you have a lifetime player, um, you know, uh, retire. You know, it's it's rare nowadays that a player spends a, a long career with one team. Uh, Brewers have had that a lot in the '80s, especially one guy that I'm sure is coming up on both our lists who spent his whole career with the Brewers. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely going to be kind of a sad day for Brewers fans. Who is your number three? It's Ryan Braun. I, I, I couldn't put him ahead of the other two guys on this list for me. Um, you know, he's uh, one of the best home run hitters in Brewers history. He's up there on those lists and one of the best clutch hitters in Brewers history. So he's number three on my list. I just could not put him put him ahead of the two guys who are in front of me who are both uh, in Cooperstown. That's fair. So our number two and number one are the same. So for the sake of wrapping this up a little bit quicker, I'm just going to ask, who is your two and who's your number one? Is it Molitor-Yount or is it Yount-Molitor? So mine is Molitor-Yount, and the reason I went with Molitor-Yount is, um, of course, both are Hall of Famers. Both have 3,000 hits. Yount did so his entire career in Milwaukee and hit 3,000 in Milwaukee, had that diving catch that had Juan Nieves' no-hitter, had some big moments. Uh, Molitor, of course, uh, I think he picked up 3,000, I believe it was uh, uh, with um, Toronto in his final, or uh, excuse me, Minnesota in his final three years. So um, I had to go Yount one just for the fact his entire playing career was uh, was with the Brewers and the fact that he barely played in the minor leagues, which is something you don't see anymore, especially for a high school kid. And Molitor number two, um, but really, I mean, you're splitting hairs between those two. Those are those are the two cornerstone players for a franchise in terms of history. The thing that's interesting about the two players is they're very different players. You know, Molitor is somebody that always hit for a high average, always got a lot of extra base hits, always scored a lot of runs, got on base a lot. Yount was more the power guy, um, although not a big power guy. I mean, he had one year where he hit 29 homers, but... The thing with Robin Yount is he hit a lot of doubles. He always hit for a high average. He won two MVP awards. I mean, in 1981, he, I'm sorry, 82, the year the Brewers made the World Series, was that 29 homer, 114 RBI year. 
you know, MVP award, silver slugger, gold glove, all of that. And then comes back and wins the MVP in 89 with 103 RBI. He hits 318 that year. And like you said, somebody that reaches 3,000 hits, plays all 20 years in Milwaukee, and is effectively Mr. Brewer. Uh, I mean, I don't think that there's anybody that will ever top what he did just because of the fact that in the modern day and age and given the type of media market size that Milwaukee is, when are you going to find anybody that plays 20 years in the majors? I think that was a good point that you made in the majors with the same team. Yeah, it's going to be hard now. Um, You know, you don't see it much in any sport. I mean, it's you don't even play 20 years in the NFL, you know, NBA, there's a lot of movement. Uh, maybe in the NHL it can happen. It has happened. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know last time a, a player outside of, you know, like Cal Ripken or guys like that who have played uh, so long with one team. So I think that's deserving of being the number one in terms of an all-time player of a team is, A, you had a Hall of Fame career and you did it all with that team. One guy that I do want to add to this list, and he wasn't a player, but somebody that I think people think of as a Hall of Famer, he is a Hall of Famer, just not a Hall of Famer as a player, although he does believe that he should have gone in as one, is Bob Euchre. And I'm not just saying this to appease to your interest, Michael, but Bob Euchre, to me, is the greatest broadcaster ever. I know so many people will will cop out and say Vin Scully because of how long Vin Scully was the voice of the Dodgers and the way that he weaves his words. But for the pure entertainment value and the pure energy that he brought to the booth and not taking himself too seriously, like I feel like you can tell in the tone of Vin Scully's voice. And I'm not trying to rip on Vin Scully at all, but the tone of Vin Scully's voice is a little bit more higher than thou than Bob Euchre. Like, Bob Euchre comes to the booth, calls a game, doesn't care what anybody thinks of him, and still has one of the best home run calls, still gets as excited as anybody else does, and just is a joy to listen to. I mean, am I wrong to say that Bob Euchre is the greatest radio man of our generation? No, I think you're you're right. And, you know, what's cool about Euchre is is he's a fan and he never even played for the Brewers he's from Milwaukee he played for the Milwaukee Braves but you know he was a, a success in uh, you know relatively speaking if you ask him about his playing career but with St. Louis uh with the Cardinals in 65 and then his career with Philadelphia and Atlanta so he never played for the Brewers but he's a Milwaukee guy he went to Tech High School in, in the south side of Milwaukee so uh he's just a fan he loves Brewers baseball and you know, sometimes you get what you get when it's an announcer who's who's a fan first, but I think he does it he does it just right. And uh, my favorite thing about Euchre is when he does spring training games because he's so loose. It's almost more like you're listening to a, a to a comedian do stand up sometimes in his spring training games, but it's so fun listening to. And uh, I love the way the players embrace Bob Euchre the last two years when they've when they've clinched divisions. They've got him down in the, the celebration. They're pouring beer on him, and he's dancing with. Uh, Orlando Arcia. So, uh, yeah, Bob Euchre, he's, he's a fan of Brewers baseball, and I think he's one of the best announcers out there. And also, not a bad actor either. No, not a bad actor. I think he did a great job as Harry Doyle. Uh, I never watched any of Mr. Belvedere, so I can't honestly say that I saw any of him in that TV show. But the old uh, Miller commercials I thought were great. Did you? So I actually found this on the Internet. 
Back when it looked like the Brewers might be playing the Red Sox in the World Series in 2018, there's actually a Miller Lite commercial called Mr. Baseball Goes to Boston, and it's Bob Uecker out in uh, whatever that market. It's Nathaniel uh, Hall. or God. See, I'm screwing it up just like him, but he's getting all the Boston names wrong. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Um, of course, the the famous uh, um, the famous one out there is not a commercial, but when he was doing WrestleMania and Andre the Giant put him in a chokehold. I forgot that he did WrestleMania. Yeah, that that was pretty good. Yeah, Bob Euchre, Mister Baseball, timeless, and uh, and somebody that will will always appreciate for all of the quirks that he has. I believe, and and then we'll wrap this up. I believe he is the only original voice of a franchise that is still left calling games for their team. I think you're right, because a lot of the newer ones have gone through quite a few um, broadcasters. But, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And he's always done radio, because I remember he might have done a few TV early, because Jim Paschke used to do TV. In fact, Jim Paschke, the longtime voice of the Bucks, was the one who called Nieves' no-hitter on uh, – on TV, but um, yeah, I think he might be the only one who was with an organization, at least of current broadcasters, who was with a Major League Baseball team from their inception. Pretty darn cool. Michael Berskowski, really appreciate your time today and uh, hope that you're staying safe and, and staying healthy and, and trying to, to find some things to occupy your time. And I'm glad that we could do that for you here today. It's uh, always fun to do these top 10 lists. I would honestly love to make this podcast talking about actual baseball, but we can't really do that right now. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Greg. It was fun being on. Always a pleasure talking to you. You're a good friend and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Michael Bruskowski, everybody. Thanks for listening to another edition of MLB Morning Coffee's Top 10 All-Time Players. This was Top 10 All-Time Brewers. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe. And as always, we'll catch you in the AM.